Hi listeners, welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Janet Cristofaro, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. I don't know about you all, but when I hear numbers, my brain fuzzes out. I get that they are important. I know that they are vital in assessing the scope of a problem and figuring out how to prioritize interventions and funding. And that's why I'm grateful there are people in the grief field who are skilled both in tracking numbers and supporting those who are grieving. My guests today are two of those colleagues. Dr. Mickey Burns is the Chief Clinical Officer for Judy's House, a peer grief support program for children and families in the Denver, Colorado area. Laura Landry is the Director of Evaluation and Research for the JAG Institute, which is the research and educational arm of Judy's House. As you can imagine, our conversation does get into the numbers. The number of children and young adults who are grieving the death of a parent or a sibling, the number of children currently grieving a death from COVID-19, and how the numbers continue to uncover the disproportionate rates of death and grief in communities of color. But it's not just numbers, I swear. We also talk about how both Mickey and Laura are personally affected by this work about what the risk factors are for children who experience the death of a parent or a sibling, about what parents and caregivers can do to support these children, including Mickey's four L's, let, love, listen, and learn. And because Mickey, Laura, and I had this conversation in late May of 2022, we also respond to the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, that killed 19 elementary students, two teachers, and wounded many more. Just a note, listeners, an acronym you'll hear us mention a few times is CBEM, which stands for the Childhood Bereavement Estimation Model. This model was created by the JAG Institute in an effort to estimate how many children in the U.S. will experience the death of a parent or sibling before they turn 18. Each year, these numbers are updated both for the nation and also for each state. For the past few years, the number of children in the U.S. estimated to have a parent or sibling die by the time they reach 18 was 1 in 14. And for the first time in a while, that number is changing. For 2022, it's shifted to 1 in 13, reflecting the increase in deaths across the country from COVID-19, substance misuse, and many other causes. Now, this is one number, the 1 in 13, that I can actually keep in my head and it points to how critical it is for us to be supporting these children and their families. I'm grateful for the work of Dr. Burns and Dr. Landry to help us all focus our efforts and get creative about how to provide that support. Okay, here's my conversation with Mickey and Laura from Judy's House. Mickey and Laura, thank you so much for joining me for Grief Out Loud today. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. And I know you all work very closely together as Judy's House, just as Dougie Center is kind of a smaller organization, and yet you have really distinct and unique roles um, and in your work there. So I wondered if Mickey and then Laura, if you could just each describe the, the, your title and the role that you have at Judy's House. 
Yes, I have been with the organization for 10 years, which is exciting because we're in our 20th year. So I've got to be part of this wonderful place for half of our existence. And in that time, I've held many roles, but I'm currently the chief clinical officer. And in this role, I get to work with our core initiatives, which are direct service, evaluation of research, and training and education initiatives. And I also feel pretty privileged and honored that I get to continue providing therapeutic services and supervision through our direct service initiatives. And in that role, I typically am working with caregivers who have experienced the death of a child who are bringing their their kiddos to Judy's house for support. Thanks, Mickey. And I know, I don't know how this is for you listeners, but when people start using the terms that they have in their titles, my eyes get a little glazed. And so it sounds like you work directly with families who have had someone in their life die. You support other people who are doing that work as a supervisor. You're involved in the like running the numbers sometimes or to find out what the work is doing and also teaching other people how to do the work. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, you caught it. That's pretty impressive. Because I know for me, especially if someone starts talking financial terms, I'm like, I have no idea what you have just said. So just (laughs) listeners, we have a clear sense of what's happening. And then Laura, you're probably going to be even more technical in your description (laughs) of your role. (laughs) I'll try not to be. (laughs) So I serve as the Director of Evaluation and Research here at Judy's House JAG Institute, and our team conducts local as well as national work. So locally, I oversee evaluation of Judy's House Direct Services, so our grief grief therapy for children and families, both on-site and the work we do in schools. And so what that means is I help oversee the surveys that are collected at pre-test and then at post-test to help evaluate or see how effective our services are. What are they doing? I'm the numbers person, I guess you could say, Jana. Um, And then I also oversee our childhood bereavement um, estimation model and our childhood bereavement change maker initiative. So these are two of our national efforts to help raise awareness for childhood bereavement and to build evaluation capacity in the field. And Laura, I just want to offer a moment of gratitude and to you as well, Mickey, because I know you were really instrumental in the CBEM uh, creation and that's the childhood bereavement estimation model because for, you know, I'm in my 20th year working at Dougie Center and for the first, I swear, 15 years of it, everyone's like, well, how many kids are actually affected by the death of a parent or a sibling? And all of us were scrambling and then it was like, well, there's this one in 20 number floating around that nobody knew where it came from. And that's just the one that we used. And so now with this estimation model of us being able to accurately say, you know, one in 17 kids in the state of Oregon where Dougie Center is located or prior to this year, it was one in 14 kids nationally across the country will experience the death of a parent or sibling before they turn 18. And to have visual imagery graphs to share, like it has just made such a difference for me and my work and doing that training and supporting others wanting to learn about children in grief. So just, yeah, huge gratitude for the work that you're doing with that. Thank you. We feel privileged to be able to serve the field in that way and appreciate the support through the New York Life Foundation to allow us to continue conducting that work and disseminating those results for free. And I know, you know, for both of you, you're in these roles at Judy's house where, you know, Mickey, you're still working directly with families, but a lot of the work you're doing is a little bit more heady, academic numbers, reports, and sometimes that can bring some distance from the personal connection to grief and to loss. And I wondered for both of you could describe a little bit about how this work has shifted or just validated or affirmed your own personal relationship with grief. 
sure. So this work has real, really reinforced for me that grief is a universal experience, connecting all of us, really a common thread. But grieving can also be isolating. So centers like the Dougie Center and like Judy's House are really important in helping connect people who are grieving to support one another on our journeys. Thanks, Laura. How about you, Mickey? I appreciate this question. I think it's one of those when we work in this field that we have to kind of continually monitor, like, how am I in relation to this mission? I personally am a, a psychologist, and I've been working for 25 years in community mental health and in the nonprofit sector. And 10 years ago, I moved to Denver to work at Judy's House because I was drawn to the mission. When I was 19 years old, my father suffered a massive stroke that left him unable to walk, talk, eat. And my mother sat safely by his side for almost a year as he was hospitalized and then in recovery. And then he came home and my mom was diagnosed with cancer and died within the next year. And my father died shortly after. And although when I came to work at Judy's house, I thought I had worked through my grief and I was in a good place and I was going to come to this place. And it was really at the time kind of more just a, a great job and a way to get to the mountains. I realized once I got here that I was able to create a living legacy for my parents and really make meaning out of the struggle that I had been through and find a way to find some purpose in my own grief journey. I, and thank you, Mickey, for sharing about your parents. And I, I love that it wasn't necessarily a conscientious or intentional, like, I'm moving to Colorado to do this work so that I can be honoring my parents and their legacy. It was like, I'm coming to get this job. And then as you're in the job, you're like, oh, that's what's actually happening underneath this surface, that it doesn't always have to be a, a clear uh, intention before you're like moving into it. Yeah, I didn't know how much I needed it. I think we hear that echoed a lot by the folks who, at least at Dougie Center, I imagine similarly at Judy's house who come to volunteer and work directly with the kids and the families that we support. And about six months into their volunteering, they're like, you know, I came here because I wanted to help other people, but I'm really recognizing how much I need this type of support and community as well. So yeah, I just appreciate that we can all be receiving and giving at the same time in this work. So Laura, this, this is a question for you. Um, and I'm having a hard time finding my words to ex like adequately express the, the question. So give me just a moment. But last week or two weeks ago, I think a family called in and they wanted to know about our services. And I was telling them about our groups for kids and teens who'd had someone in their life die and the process to get started. And in the middle of taking in all that information, one of the adults just stopped me and said, well, do these kids even need to grieve? Like, is it important? Because they don't look like they're grieving and we don't want to make them grieve if it's not really affecting them. And I didn't know what to say because after 20 years in this field, I'm so, the assumption is so embedded in me that like, if someone dies, people are grieving. What their grief looks like is different and what kids need in that grief is going to be different. But there's not a question of if they are experiencing or reacting to the death of that person. So I just wondered, Laura, like, what would you have said in response? And kind of like, what's your reaction to hearing about that? My reaction to hearing that is that research does not reinforce the idea that uh, children shouldn't grieve, that they shouldn't be crying when they're experiencing a loss. Research shows that experiencing the death of an important person during childhood 
actually places children at increased risk for several negative outcomes, both at the time of the loss and down the road. So in the short term, we can see decreased motivation and achievement in school and other activities. We see emotional dysregulation and relationship difficulties. And in the long term, we can see ongoing mental health problems, health difficulties, and even earlier death. In families, a child's adjustment to loss is directly related to how their caregivers respond. So caregiver adjustment and response is one of the biggest predictors of a child's health and well-being. We also know that when we provide bereaved youth with safe, comfortable, open, inclusive spaces that allow them to question and process and work through their grief, which includes tears at times, we can often prevent negative outcomes. There's a full continuum of services that can support grieving children. We can provide peer support and therapeutic programs like what we offer at Dougie Center and at Judy's House that help children know they're not alone and can create space for them to be comfortable with any sort of emotion that they're feeling due to their grief. And there's also other touch points that can serve as community protective factors. So healthcare workers, first responders, uh, teachers and other school personnel, clergy, coaches, and so on can help serve as these helpful touch points that are uh, allowing children to experience just authentic emotion during these, during these difficult times. So it's not necessarily that every child who has someone die in their life automatically needs clinical mental health therapy, but just the right. idea that the grief needs to be supported and acknowledged in some way by someone or some people in their life and their community. Absolutely. So, you know, usually I'm on, if I'm on the other end of the questions in a podcast interview or training, people are always asking me, you know, well, okay, we know kids need support in their grief. We got that. But what do I do? What do I say? How do I act? How do I respond to them? And I'm excited because this is the first time I can just punt that question to those of you who do similar work that I do. And so I would just love to hear from you. Like, how do you answer that question? Yeah, I, I love this question. Um, and I like to think about the four L's. Let, love, listen, and learn. So first, you have to, as an adult who's trying to support a bereaved child, whether you're grieving or not, you have to let yourself have space to really touch in and, and say, how am I doing? And if you are grieving, to do that openly and honestly. So make sure you have the space to do that. Next, love. You have to allow yourself to love that child fearlessly and unconditionally. This means creating that space for them to grieve individually and as a family and recognizing that each person is going to grieve in their own unique way. Next, we have listen. And this one, I mean, if we could just get everybody to do a little bit more listening and a little less talking, I think we'd go a far long way in our field, but listening carefully to the child's words and then also observing their behavior because they don't always have the words to tell us what's going on for them or how they're feeling. And so by watching their behavior, we're able to see a little bit more of what grief looks like in their world. And then finally, learn. We have to learn that although we can't fix grief, we can provide support to children in gaining the skills and the courage to have the wide range of grief reactions, both positive and negative, so that they can go on to live a happy, healthy life. So that's kind of my um, gimmicky way of saying, let's 
let love listen and learn and really take that to help children advance along that grief journey in a way that's going to be healthy. Mickey, are the four L's trademarked? Because I do so many trainings and I like shower people with so much information. And I'm like, wait, I just need something simple to follow. The four L's would be so great. Am I allowed to use that in my own trainings if I give you credit? Oh, please take it. Because I just <laughs> came up with it this morning, trying to figure out the what let let like figuring out let I was googling verbs that start with the letter L. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really appreciate that. And I think it is such an important reminder that oftentimes as adults, we need to start with where we are before we even start trying to be there for other people and particularly for other children. If we have to get grounded in our own, we talk about the idea of just having self-awareness of our own grief and our reaction to grief and what's coming up for us in the moment that could be skewing or, um, influencing how we are responding to the child in front of us who's needing our support. And so, you know, today is Thursday, May 26th, and just two days ago, there was uh, a school shooting in Texas that I'm sure listeners, many of you are aware of, even those of you who are not here in the United States may be aware of this. And it is one of many mass shootings that have occurred in the United States just in the first you know, half of 2022. And in this shooting so far that we are aware of, 21 people died, 19 children who were in a, you know, fourth grade classroom and two teachers. And as these things go, unfortunately, we're very familiar with how this, there's like a huge outcry. There's a lot of political conversations happening. And then there's just the reality of the families who are facing this devastating loss of their children and their co-workers and their parent. And then there's also parents and families around the country and around the globe who are now either faced with needing to talk to their own children about what have what has happened and also um, acknowledging the way that these events, these tragedies can activate their own grief. And, you know, Mickey, I'm just curious, like, well, first, like, how has it been for you these last two days? what's been on your mind and what suggestions might you have for people who are trying to have a conversation with their kids? Well, first of all, Jane, I really appreciate you creating the space for us to acknowledge this tragic loss and to, to share a little bit about how it's impacting us and impacting our communities. For me personally, we, Laura and I were in an all day board retreat. We only do this once a year when we got the news about the shooting. And um, at that point, there was lots of mixed messages coming out about how many people had been injured and how many had died. And we took a moment in that meeting to just kind of pause and really focus on this is why we're all here. In uh, this year alone, over 17,000 people have died from gun violence in the United States. That's staggering. It's really hard to believe. And to think that these fourth grade students in this classroom, the kind of terror that must have been going on in that building is so frightening. It's almost unfathomable for me as an adult who does this work every day. And so I think personally, when I got the news, I kind of went into, okay, what are we going to do? What's going to be our response as Judy's house? How are we going to help our community? And then personally, I was thinking, what can I do to help the community in Texas? I actually moved here from Dallas. And although that's 
kind of far because Texas is so big from the town where this incident occurred, it definitely hit close to home for some of my friends and family in that area. And so I thought about what we could do as an organization. We were able to put out some some tips for how to talk to children about tragedy. I know that Dougie Center has great resources too. We were able to go to social media and really talk about how this is impacting our world and our community. And then that night I went into the group that I facilitate, a group of caregivers who have all experienced the death of their own child. And this was our very first group at Judy's house. And as we sat there, the very first group member who volunteered to share a little bit of his story said, you know, I, I want to share about the death of my daughter, but I have to say that this news about the loss of these 19 young children is really hitting me in a way that the unfortunate senseless tragedies that have happened before haven't. And so I think what you mentioned, Gina, about the ripple effect and the way that this this tragedy that's happening in one part of our country is impacting grievers all across our country and really all across the world. And I just hope that we're able to continue to hold on to hope despite things that feel so senseless and out of our, out of our control. And I know that's difficult to do and I'm struggling with my, with it myself, if I'm completely honest. I appreciate that, Mickey, because I know for me, you know, when it first happened, I, I feel like my general protective cloak that I wear while doing this work got ripped away. And I was like, I'm having feelings. I don't appreciate this. Like, what is going on? And then very quickly by the next day, you know, the like protective shroud of cynicism and numbness swept back in. And I felt like, okay, now I can go do this work and be with these families. And then there was a part of me that was almost relieved to know that I could still touch into that human experience that so many people are having across the country and the world. And then I got really angry that I was even having the opportunity to explore that side of what it's like for me to do this work for so long and to be with so many stories of tragedy when another major tragedy happens, along with 8,000 other thoughts and emotions that were swirling at the same time. But yeah, I'm not really sure even why I'm sharing that. Yeah, and I hear you that when you say, I'm not even sure why I'm saying this, but then when we think back to what we do, what you and I, Jana, get to do, really we're facilitating a space for people to talk. And you just did that for me, and you have that opportunity to respond back. And I think what's important in this time, this time of loss, this time of grief, this time of anger, is that we are creating those spaces for one another. And Laura, that makes me want to extend that invitation to you as well, knowing that your work is a little bit more removed from the direct service with families who are grieving, and that may impact you in a different way. Yeah, I mean, I I do think sometimes our team talks a little bit about how talking about numbers and reading the stories of families who come in for services at Judy's house, understanding and looking at that data and talking about how many people have died from this different cause or something like this. Um, yeah, sometimes I think we, it can be dehumanizing because it's just part of what our work is. And also sometimes we have, we have to have conversations as an evaluation team around, Hey, I'm actually having a hard time with this right now and create some space for what that looks like in particular for me on, um, Tuesday, as Mickey said, we sort of wrapped up our board meeting on a, I think it was a good retreat. And then we're 
wrapping up, I think on a really sad and tragic note. And I was like, I need to go home and hug my babies. I have a child who's in elementary school. And so I think that the piece that you're talking about of the what if scenario, and I think that's sort of how that hit me. And then I've been using some of the talking points that Mickey had put together of how to have a conversation with your children, because both of my children, everybody, they are talking about it. We talked about feeling unsafe in school and um, how to feel safe and what questions they had. And so we had some interesting conversations at home that I haven't had before. That's sort of what it looked like for, for me to sort of put firmly on my mommy hat and say in my protective mode of wanting to just be thankful and grateful that um, we're okay. And also just feeling heartbroken for those families in Texas who have lost their babies and just um, wanting to make sure we can reach out. We actually worked with an organiz- partnered with an organization that operates out of El Paso. And so we're gonna reach out to their organization and just express support and let them know that we're thinking about them as they are likely supporting some of these families who are grieving right now. Laura, you can pass on this if it feels too personal, but you know, you mentioned that you, you know, had to go home and talk with your kids and that Mickey provided some talking points. And I, I wonder if you'd be willing to share either, you know, some of the talking points that you've used or some of the questions that your kids had just for our listeners who were like, okay, I get it. I, I need to have this conversation, but I don't actually know what that's going to sound or look like. Sure. I mean, what I talked with my children about was really just opening up space initially of, Hey, are your friends talking about this? So to just say, Hey, what's happening in conversations. And they both said, so I have a 13 year old also, Janice, 13 and 11. Yes, people are talking about that. What does it make you think about? Um, Are you feeling some emotions that you'd like to discuss? Um, The first answer was no. Um, which I think is <laughs> maybe pretty typical. <laughs> and then we it opened up a little bit of a conversation around, hey, what does it mean to be safe? And how do you feel safe? And do you feel safe at your schools? And so some of it, I think they were like the initial conversation, I think they had a little bit of a, I don't know, I would say like a protective guard up maybe of, no, this would never happen to me. This is happening somewhere else. This isn't real I, in a way. And then I think they felt a little bit more, a little more comfortable eventually saying, yeah, I I feel sad. I feel a little nervous. So we talked about going back to school the next day and for the rest of the week and how here are the safety measures we have in place at our schools. We are here to keep you safe. And we had, it was, I think most of our conversation was really just around addressing the anxiety that they expressed and then how we are putting measures into place to keep them safe. Um, Mickey, I don't know if you want to share some of the other pieces that you discussed in terms of caregivers having a conversation with their children, but that's where the conversation in my household went. And I think it was a good one to, I was required a little probing, (laughs) (laughs) but they did, I think, end up sharing something. And I was glad that I had those, I felt comfortable um, asking some of those questions and pushing a little bit to challenge the like, no, I'm not worried about it thing, because they were a little bit worried about it. Yeah. And I think, Laura, you, you know, you may not have thought you were following those tips that we put out, but but you were, because really, it's a, a matter of first taking stock of how you're doing and really assessing, is this a conversation I can go into and confidently create a safe space for my child? And if I can't, I better talk to somebody else before I head that direction. And then really open up that space to say, what have you heard? What are your concerns? How can we together create a a space that feels safe for you? 
I think one of the other suggestions that, that many organizations have been putting out there is trying to find some action-oriented way that you can do something to feel like you're able to create some positive influence in the community in the midst of such tremendous loss. And that may look like donating money to a cause that you care about, or it may look like writing cards to people who you know are grieving or you know, creating some sort of service project that says, I wanna make my community beautiful when we see such tragedy. And I think the other thing that, that we talked about was recognizing that the shooter in this situation had been through a lot of difficult mental health challenges and really thinking through how we as, as a society, as a country, how we are addressing the many issues that are tied to this. So how are we supporting children who are isolated and alone and children who may feel bullied and neglected? How are we bringing them into the fold and helping them feel included and welcome? Because that's something we can all do every day. Well, I really appreciate both you, Laura and Mickey, being willing to share you know, the more personal reaction and how that influences the professional reaction. And then Laura, for your, you know, specific example that I think many parents who are listening out there can really relate to of having that conversation with kids and their kind of like first response and then the second layer response and, and Mickey just, you know, all of the helping us get grounded in the bigger perspective of what we as individuals can do, but also hopefully collectively uh, be addressing as well. So Going to the numbers, because I know for me sometimes when it gets a little too tender, I'm like, what can I think about which will help my my tender heart get a little break? And so I just wanted to, you know, take a little time to talk about the number side of things at Judy's House and, and the JAG Institute and that sort of the re- educational research side of the work that you all do. So could you could one of you talk a little bit about that work and then we'll go a little deeper into it as well. Absolutely. So um, from the beginning, Judy's House has relied on feedback from our clients to continually develop, evaluate, and improve the services we offer. So we really like to use data to inform the work that we're doing. Um, One of our newest efforts through the JAG Institute is the Childhood Bereavement Changemaker Initiative. We were excited to partner with the Dougie Center as one of our first selected changemakers. We see the Dougie Center as a leader in the field and a center of excellence that is seeded a lot of work across the country that supports bereaved children and families. So this Childhood Bereavement Changemaker Initiative is funded through the New York Life Foundation to build grief centers evaluation capacity to help grief centers use information to the, to the benefit of the clients they're serving, their participants, and also to engage other stakeholders in this work. So we're working with 30 organizations across the country to support them in gathering in using essential data to inform their decisions, improve their programs, measure impact, and engage others in this important work. So we're really excited about that initiative through the JAG Institute. And then the CBEM, as you mentioned, is another one of the large initiatives through the JAG Institute. When Brooke and Brian first started Judy's House 20 years ago, one of their first questions was, how many kids are grieving? How do we know how much service is needed? And so that led to the development of the Childhood Bereavement Estimation Model, or the CBIM for short. So our team continues improving the model and disseminating results with philanthropic support through the New York Life Foundation. So the CBIM approximates 
rates of U.S. children and youth who will experience the death of a parent or sibling by the time they reach adulthood. As you were saying, Jana, early on, there were, you know, some unknown numbers, and now we have a consistent metric that we can put out every year because we use new results from that are distributed from the CDC um, to update the numbers every year. And we provide that at the state and the national level so that grief centers across the country have updated numbers on what's happening in their community. So this year, according to the 2022 CBIM results, one in 13 children in the U.S. will experience the death of a parent or sibling by their 18th birthday. So that is 5.6 million children and youth in our country. It is staggering. When we consider the size of an average classroom in the U.S. is about 26 students, we, we can see bereaved students may often feel isolated and alone in their grief. Um, and we also know that so this model focuses on death of a parent or sibling. And we also know that children grieve the deaths of other important people in their lives. And so these estimates that I'm sharing, these numbers, um, we know they're probably a lot bigger in terms of how many kids are grieving because it, it doesn't include grandparents, aunts or uncles or friends. Um, but what we hope to do with this tool is to help understand differences in grief that might lead to disparities in care. So, for example, our team released reports late last year highlighting the differences in bereavement based on race and ethnicity. And this fall, we will release reports focused on differences related to the manner and death. We believe that the CBIM is important because if we highlight the magnitude of this issue, we can help ensure that adequate support is available to those in need of care. Um, and as we talked about earlier, Jana, the CBIM helps communities elevate awareness around the impact of unaddressed grief, campaign for grief resources, and contribute to improved outcomes for grieving children and families. There's quite a bit more we do through the JAG Institute, including a robust training program in which we train up to 15 masters and doctoral students each year. And we also provide training and education throughout the community and have established some systems that enable consistent evaluation documentation. So that's more of the local data collection regarding the effectiveness of our Judy's House programs. So that's a little bit, a little bit about sort of the range of work that's happening through the JAG Institute. And Laura, you mentioned, you know, the deeper investigation into different death rates for different races and ethnicities and communities, and then also like the effect of different ways that people have died. And I wonder, you know, can you share a little bit about what you have uncovered around how, you know, the death rates are disproportionately impacting certain communities? I think about that in light of, you know, with the COVID-19 pandemic, how much that uncovered of how Black, Indigenous, Latinx, Asian Pacific Islander communities were being disproportionately impacted by rates of illness and death, particularly in the early phase of the pandemic. And just wondering what you all have also discovered in your work around that. Absolutely. So yes, in, in 2021, we released our um, childhood bereavement by race and ethnicity uh, results. And we used the categories that are available through the Census Bureau, which are rather limited. But we did, we absolutely found exactly what you noted, Jenna, that bereavement disproportionately impacts Black and Indigenous youth. And in some states, the rates were incredibly high, where it was like one in three Indigenous youth in uh, South Dakota will be bereaved by their 25th birthday. So it is astounding. I mean, the number, I think we expected those numbers to show what we already knew in terms of the mortality data, exactly what you're saying. We know from the mortality data that the mortality rates for Black adults in this country are higher than our, they are for any other group. 
but looking at the numbers specifically and how that relates to childhood bereavement, I think it was, that was one of those cases where I think looking at the data was really truly upsetting to the team and like reviewing it. And I think people were pretty emotional about that and having conversations about that is difficult, but that's reality. And I think that's part of what this work is about is raising awareness, right? And saying, this is an issue putting out these reports so that people in these different states can highlight and have conversations with folks around, hey, we need to do something about this. So the, on the bereavement end of things, that death has already happened. And so having the CBIM be connected with some larger public health conversations around, hey, we need to have better care. Like the things that we talked about in terms of what's happening with these rates and why are these so high? I mean, clearly there's there are health disparities. This is due to systemic racism. There's all sorts of reasons that this is happening and that these things need to be addressed. And then bringing childhood bereavement into the conversation allows us to make this connection of when more Black parents are dying, more Black children are grieving. This is, has a disproportionate impact on this community. So how do we serve the community and how do we help on the prevention side of things with more of these public health approaches? And have either of you seen or heard of some of those program initiatives to address these higher rates for communities of color? You know, I think it's something that we're we're increasing our level of awareness about. In addition to this being a tragic week with the shooting in Texas, it's also the two-year anniversary of the death of George Floyd. And I think that that incident created some action in our country. Unfortunately, we've seen that dwindle over time. And so we hope that things like the SEBIM analysis looking at race and ethnicity can help us continue to keep holding our feet to the fire in some ways. And I think I'm, I'm heartened by seeing things like a recent project that we got involved in with the Aluna Foundation, which funds Camp Aaron um, sites all across the country. And so we're working with each of the Camp Aaron sites to help them understand a little bit more about their community and about what their community looks like in terms of different demographic characteristics. And then we're looking at the characteristics of the children who come to their Camp Aaron programs. And then Camp Aaron is gonna be offering grants to those sites to be able to say, okay, we identified some gaps here. We're looking at the makeup of our community and we're looking at the kids who come for our programs and they don't match. And so here's some funds to really find creative and inventive solutions to bridge that gap. And I think those types of grassroots efforts are gonna be essential to beginning to break down some of these barriers to care, some of the inequity that exists. And I think it's gonna take something much larger than grassroots to really truly address some of the systemic issues that have led to these disparities that we see coming through in the CBIM results. So I, I wanted to also talk a little bit more about the numbers related to the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, and just last week, we crossed the 1 million mark of you know, people who have died of COVID-19. And in the last year, there was also a dramatic increase just in people of dying of other causes, uh, including a huge increase in those who have died of substance use. And I just wondered, like, how are you sitting with these staggering numbers? And what do they have you thinking about in terms of kids and grief? Yeah, I'm a million. Like, I don't think any of us ever thought that we would hit that mark. And I think as the pandemic 
evolved and continued to roar, we saw that it was going to be a reality. And many of us still haven't quite wrapped our heads around it. I know I haven't. According to the COVID Collaborative, which is an organization that's looking at how COVID is impacting children in a number of different ways, more than 200,000 youth have lost a parent to COVID. We were able to analyze the provisional CDC mortality data through February of 2020. And using the CBIM, we found that 10% of the newly bereaved youth who are grieving are grieving the death of a parent due to COVID. And I think that's just unfathomable in some ways. And it means that 90% of the newly bereaved are grieving death losses that aren't connected to COVID. And so I think for us, as we can sit and we look at these numbers, we're hopeful that we'll be able to create spaces that these children grieving COVID death losses can come into and feel feel accepted and feel like they are able to work through the grief process that they have, which is unique and different because of the way their caregiver died, potentially, and that we are continuing to recognize that before COVID existed, 5.3 million children in the U.S. were anticipated to experience the death of a parent or sibling by their 18th birthday. And so making sure that we are looking at how to support children who are grieving from COVID and making sure that we're also addressing those staggering increases, like you said, Gina, in substance misuse deaths and gun violence deaths, as we saw this week, and really trying to tailor the interventions that we have to be able to create the most impact in the communities that have the most need. And Mickey, as you were talking, my brain was racking itself to try to remember the numbers that you had shared earlier, Laura, that you said that we have moved from one in every 14 youth in the United States to one in every 13 youth in the United States will have a parent or sibling die by the time they turn 18. And did you say the number was, that means it's an excess of 5.6 million kids in the U.S.? Yes, you have that exactly right. It is just staggering numbers of youth who are projected to experience bereavement. And COVID is a part of that, but there is a larger story about the other top leading causes of death where we see from accidents, and as you noted, from overdose deaths, substance use related, those deaths are on the rise, cancer and heart disease, and some of those more, quote, normal top five leading causes of death, where those are accounting for a lot more kids um, breathing um, due, who are bereaved due to the death loss of a parent. And so we want to we want to be inclusive and participate in those conversations around um, the impact of COVID and also make sure we don't forget that there are a lot of other children who are grieving and we want to provide services to all of those children. And as Mickey said, create space where um, children will not feel alone in their grief, no matter what type of death loss they have experienced. And I know we've spent the majority of our conversation really talking about kids and teens and why their grief matters and what they need and what the effects can be of unaddressed or unsupported grief. But I think about all of those kids are usually surrounded by adults, parents, caregivers, teachers, other community members who are part of that grief as well. And I wondered if you had any ideas or tips or suggestions for the adults who are now in that position of being a support 
to their kid or to their family member who's grieving or to their student while also carrying likely their own grief? Yeah, it's a great question. Laura mentioned earlier that one of the number one predictors of how well a child will adjust to a death loss is how well their caregiver adjusts to that death loss. So each week in our adult programs at Judy's house, we offer a caregiving skill to provide support and assistance in parenting a grieving child. And in my 10 years of participating in these groups, the first caregiving skill that we share is almost always the most difficult one for our group members to accept, and it's self-care. So we really stress the importance of taking care of yourself first so that you have the capacity and the energy to be present for your children. You know, the concept of putting yourself first can be overwhelming even when you're not grieving, but in the midst of loss, it can feel nearly impossible. And so what we do in that situation is we try to break the concept of self-care down into manageable realities and goals. Like, did you drink water today? Did you brush your teeth this morning? Did you spend five minutes stretching or moving your body? Did you eat a fruit or a vegetable? These tiny things that might feel achievable to somebody whose world has just been turned upside down. And then if we start small, there's room for incremental growth from there. So maybe next we go to, did you schedule your annual exams with your doctor? Because self-care isn't just getting pedicures and manicures and going fishing. It's really about making sure that you are ensuring your health and well-being so that you can be here for your kids as long as possible. And so I think that is the most important element that, that you can do. It's a gift to yourself and it's a gift to your children. Laura, anything you would add to that, either as a parent yourself? Well, I do think that choosing to prioritize self-care, it, it has to be a deliberate choice because otherwise I think at any time you get busy, you're busy, you are doing all of the things that are normal. And a lot of times that does not include um, prioritizing something that you might need as a parent. And so I think just speaking from general experience parenting, uh, I think it's really helpful to have some instructions for folks on, hey, this is actually one of the essentials. You need to prioritize you. And here's some basic ways to do that. I think that instruction is really helpful. Well, Mickey and Laura, thank you so much for making time to talk with me today. And I imagine that many of our listeners are curious uh, to learn more about your work and to, you know, find out more about the CBEM, the Childhood Bereavement Estimation Model of where they can access the data that's available for, for the public. And so are there any places you'd like to direct listeners to that I will put in the show notes, but just in case they're driving or walking and just want to go there right now? Yeah, we, we strongly encourage people to visit our website which is www.judyshouse.org. And Judy is spelled with an I, so it's a little bit, of a, so it's sometimes difficult to find. But if you want to stay up on the latest things that we're doing, following us on Facebook and Instagram is a great way to stay in touch with the latest results that are coming out of our evaluation and research department, the training and education offerings that we have, and really just to be a supporter of the community and the direct services that we provide. 
Well, I appreciate you both again, not only for your time today. I mean, you sound very busy. There's a lot that you all are doing. So just carving out an hour of your day to talk with me and to share with our listeners, but also for the bigger picture of the work that you're doing, you know, locally in Colorado, but nationally and globally, um, the difference that this research is making for those of us who do this work and for funding agencies and other governmental organizations who are getting on board with how do we best support kids grief in uh, maybe a bigger picture kind of way. So really grateful for all that you both are doing out in the world. Thank you, Jana. It's been great to join you today. Yes, thank you. We really appreciate the opportunity to speak to the listeners. And listeners out there, I say it each and every time, but we are grateful for you for tuning in, for making the show mean something in this world, for sharing episodes with people in your life that you think might be supported by the conversations that we are having here. If you want to reach out to me directly, tell me what you think of the show. If you have a suggestion for an episode, my direct email is griefoutloud at Dougie, D-O-U-G-Y o-r-g that's also the website for dougie center where you'll find all of our past episodes all of our free downloadable resources including tip sheets activities uh, for kids and teens as well as a directory where you can find programs similar to ours all around the country and the world like judy's house and i'm also excited to share with you that this podcast is sponsored in part by the chester stefan endowment fund thank you so much for listening we hope you'll join us again next time <laughs>